Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Witten Whiskey Cast, your favorite whiskey adjacent podcast. I, as always, am your host, Mark Resetting Jr., and let's all just give a big hand to the most patient co-host in the world, Mr. DJ Gagnon. Hey, everybody. That was, that was nice. Thank you, folks. He deserved that. <laughs> Mark's got this crazy new soundboard that we are working out this week, so if the audio of the recording is a little bit wonky, folks, we're, uh, we're doing our best over here. It has been lights and colors and buttons and basically it has one button that makes everything echo but it's not the echo button so we were uh, we're a little delayed this week as we're trying to chase through the bugs in the system but here we go on what our second or third attempt this week uh but i think we got it worked out we do we do i'm i'm excited i'm in my office here in the in in studio shire uh first time ever which i'm really excited about i'm actually sitting in a a comfortable chair. I've got my laptop on a desk and not balanced precariously on on books. Uh, so we're we're, we're in high production value this week. Yes, I'm I'm still in the 1821 studios down here in Pennsylvania. I've got a fine glass of uh, this week's review whiskey and a nice cigar, and I'm just looking at all the multicolored buttons in the glow because it is so bloody hot down here and. Uh, the studio doesn't have air conditioning. The, the bedroom and everything upstairs, you know, with the cat and the wife, they, they have the air. So I'm, I'm a little warm this week, so I have the lights off just in the glow of my laptop and the new soundboard as it, all the levels and uh, equalizers and things flicker as I talk. That's amazing. Uh, this, the, this room that I have my office in is super hot during the day because it is a like a nine-by-nine-foot uh, room and one wall is completely overtaken with a window. So I just, I just get greenhouse effect and, uh, the wall opposite the window is a giant seven foot bookcase of insulation and paper. So it's just, uh, this is the hottest room during the day and I'm sitting here right now thinking I need a hoodie. So, um, I, I might need some better heat and cooling solutions in this room long term. I'm sitting here in a sleeveless T-shirt and shorts, and just it's it's not pleasant. But hey, it is what it is. So uh, I take it the finishing touches in the office that was the majority of what you did this week. Yeah, uh, a lot of what I've done last week or so has been finishing up this office. Uh, last week, um, you know, we 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 delayed recording, just uh, all sorts of craziness going on. I built this giant bookcase uh, sitting next to me. Uh, has all of my D and D books nicely, proudly arrayed. That you can see them all and see all their spines, which I've never actually had before. Um, and then I built this this huge desk I'm sitting at. Um, it, this is the biggest desk I've ever had, Mark. It's like six feet eight inches wide. It's insane. I mean, that's unnecessary. That's like super villain, you know round table gentlemen bring all my henchmen to me yeah yeah it's it's absurd it's a sit stand desk so i can stand when i'm doing things i'm not going to stand for the podcast um i i get twirly with a glass of whiskey i don't think that nobody wants to hear me fall down during mid-recording i mean that would be kind of funny (laughs) as long as you were okay i don't want you to hurt but fall over that's gonna be funny yeah um but but ultimately it's uh it, it it was a pretty good week. We got to see some friends. We got 
um, washed, did a ton of laundry, which doesn't sound very interesting, but it meant that we got to put away a lot of baby clothes. So, uh, it right down to the wire mark. We, we've got eight weeks left here. Yep. Tick, 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 tick. I can hear the clock. <laughs> yep. How about you, man? What you been up to? Well, uh, now as I mentioned, it's a bit warm here, but I'm, that's not a complaint, mind you, before everybody you know, starts sending in the hate tweets. I actually like the summer. I actually like the heat. Uh, I'm not a winter person. I'm a bear. I hibernate in the winter. We've, we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, but it is basically uh, all that is on in the news locally is, oh, it's hot. Uh. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because any time around here in this area of Pennsylvania in which I live, we get two or three, not even super hot days like we've had, but two or three just days, 80, 85 above in a row. You hear all the old people, you know, we really need the rain. You know, we really need the rain. No, we don't. Those poor people in Texas, 42 straight days with no rain, they need the rain. Yeah. It has rained here like five times in the last two weeks alone. It just rains at night when you're asleep because it's the summer and that's when thunderstorms pop up. So I'm just so sick of that. You know, oh, wait, we need the rain. We, no, we're not even in a drought. Your yard is brown. Get over it. You shouldn't <laughs> be cutting the grass as much as you are anyway. So, oh, so you hear great. a lot about that. Um, it was Romulus's birthday since we recorded. Oh, happy birthday to the fine fella. Uh, he was, you know... Well, we think he was one, because, of course, he was a stray, so uh, the vet had to guess his age. But we believe, uh, you know, it was just recently in July. So we had a little party for him. We got him some feline safe ice cream, which is like his new obsession now, and uh, some presents. And he actually wore the hat and the bib briefly. So that was a win, and he wanted to get some photos with him. And he was nice enough for a couple, and then that was that, and we moved on. Speaking of Stray, have you started to play Stray yet? Oh, my God. We could just spend this whole episode talking about it. It's so good, Mark. It's so fucking good. Very sad in the beginning, but so good. Very sad. But the, I just, I love it. It's there's it's a weird amount of strategy for a game where you literally play as a stray cat. And, you know, that's not being facetious. Like, the, I was curious to see how they were going to do this. I mean, this has been one of the more hyped releases of 2022, especially on the PlayStation side. Uh, This is sort of the big formal launch of the new combined PS Plus, PS Now, Scorpio, whatever the fuck they're calling it, because this is, at least to the best of my knowledge, the first, uh, first party day one free release that's on the platform. And... I was a little curious to see how they're going to do this because they're all like, oh, you play as a cat. And it's like, oh, is it just another video game where, you know, you're basically super intelligent and, you know, you have a feline form. No, you play as a cat. Mm -hmm. You do shit that a cat does. (laughs) You can meow at will. Oh, yeah. It took me literally a minute and a half to get the hundred meows you needed for that fucking trophy. Yeah, I was, I'm probably pretty close because I was trying to screw with Romulus this morning to see if it would do anything. He didn't even really take any notice. So <laughs> it doesn't seem to bother him at all. So I don't know. But no, it's a good game. Uh, if you have a PlayStation, if, if you're in the new PS Plus, PS Now, whatever, I think it's the middle tier and up because there's like, you know, five tiers or whatever the fuck it is. 
you get it for free. If not, it's only $30 because it's not that long a game, which isn't a knock, by the way. Um, and I thought I read somewhere that a part of the money goes to shelter cats, like $5 of the 30 or something goes to shelter cats. So, uh, you know, it's a good deal all around. You just pick it up. It's on Steam, too. So if you have a PC, pick that up. And if you have an Xbox, you don't have any friends, so you're not listening to this podcast anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a very good game. I have really been enjoying it. I, th- the first big main hub area you get into, there's like a set of trade quests. Like I, I thought it was bonkers that you're playing as a cat and trading things with the robots, but um, definitely check it out. It's pretty fantastic. It is absolutely glorious. Speaking of glorious, what are you drinking this week? I, I see it on the list, and I've had it before, and I think it's glorious. What, what do you think it is? I think it's pretty good. Uh, so I've done the Glenlivet 12 before, pretty standard uh, space-side entry for any of you guys looking for, for something uh, to try on a scotch. Uh, and I decided to up my game a little bit, and I went with the Glenlivet 14, um, which I was very happy to find out. Is a cascade. Uh, it Glenlivet fourteen uh, is initially aged for fourteen years. It's matured in bourbon and sherry casks, and then it's finished in cognac casks for the last six months. And I think it's really good. Uh, I tend to find things that are cask aged take on uh, you know a really deep color, especially port casks. Um, it, this is a pretty light in color uh, entry. It doesn't tastes like a scotch which i really like i mean it's obviously a scotch it's you know it's a space side but uh you know it's it's got some some fruity notes some citrus notes it's kind of syrupy without being saccharine um i i really like it it's uh it's only 80 proof uh i feel like i i, I feel like a good number of scotches are not crazy high proof um i don't feel like they get into the the you know overproof game very often so th- this is a pretty easy entry to get in with um i did look at the store for a full-size bottle and I, they don't have the smaller 375 mil ones that the glenlivet 12 comes in at least not that i could find uh so i did end up picking up a nip of it uh, you can generally at least in new hampshire you can generally find glenlivet nips pretty easily um so I picked this one up, and I picked a Jameson one up for for the last episode we did, and uh, it, it's pretty great. I really do like this. Um, it, it, with the Glenlivet Twelve, I feel like you can still it's a it's a bit more scotchy. Uh, with this one, it, it just it tastes cask aged. It's got that complexity that I like, um, but it doesn't really have that kind of. I don't know. I don't know why, but sometimes Scotch tastes a little clinical to me, um, and I think it's probably because I'm more used to like bourbons or Americans that are, uh, you know, they're a little bit harsher. Um, but this is great. I, I definitely recommend it. That's you know, you mentioned clinical. That's a good way of you know describing it. You know, a lot of the Scotch distillers justifiably so but they like to go back on their tradition and you know their heritage and uh etc but it is a very clinical almost scientific way that scotch is prepared and that that's 
especially when you get into some of the more, um, you know, casked, uh, single cask and cask aged and the longer 10, 12, 14, 16 year, uh, you know, ages. So that, that was, you know, I picked up on that. That was kind of interesting that you mentioned that. That's a really good way to describe it. Yeah. It, I, I don't know why it just, there, there's kind of a, an almost lab quality to, to some scotches that I, I think is part of the reason why I don't appreciate them. And I don't think scotches are made in a lab. They're, it's just, I think it's the way that they make scotch is, is like you say, it's very scientific. And I feel like we kind of have this, this idea of whiskey in the U S of it, it being, you know, all oh, that rough and tumble cowboy drinking the, the harsh charcoal filtered shit. And it's, uh, it, it doesn't really have that. It's it's a very it's a very different process. So, I I think there are probably people out there who would disagree with me or who appreciate Scotch way more than I do. Um, you know, feel free to drop us a line at the Whit and Whiskey Cast at Gmail dot com. Let us know what you think. Yeah, definitely. We're always uh, always interested in our readers' uh, reviews of what we uh, yeah, readers. We're a book now. Our listeners' uh, reviews of what we're. <laughs> what we're reviewing each week. Uh, but what about you, buddy? What you got for uh, for a drink in your cup today? Well, you'll notice I don't have anything in the notes because when we were putting these notes together last week, I wasn't sure what I was going to get because I hadn't gone to the liquor store yet. And when I went to the liquor store this, uh, you know, in between episodes, they had something that I've been eyeing up for a little while and they only had two bottles of it, so even though it was a little bit more than I wanted to spend, I pulled the trigger, and I am partaking this week in a glass of Maker's Mark cask strength. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Now, this is kind of fun. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, you know, cask strengths are, <laughs> they're not a new thing. You know, we've talked about this when we did our Whiskey and Whiskey episode, but they're seeing a revival, you know, bit. Whiskey trends are cyclical. Everything comes and goes. And it's basically for overproof, hard-hitting whiskeys and bourbons. And this is Maker's Mark, uh, their entry. And it's kind of fun because all of them are uh, bottled. The barrels that, that they're making them, they're all roughly around 110. And then depending on the air temperature, depending on the humidity, depending on the individual barrels and the wood that they're stored in, it rises and falls. So each bottle is actually, well, each batch, rather, is a different, slightly different, um, no less than 108 proof, no more than 114 proof. And the bottles come numbered with the batch number, the proof of the batch number, and then just to drive the point home, the actual alcohol by volume percentage. So my bottle came from batch 21-07. It is 109.3 proof for a cool, crisp 54.65% alcohol by volume. Wow. So as near as makes no difference, 55% alcohol by volume. And as my wife pointed out to me just before we went on the air, uh, back during the heydays of COVID when everyone was doing a mad rush on Hand sanitizer, the CDC was making a big point of your hand sanitizer needs to be 70%. So we're only 15% off, and this is what we're drinking. <laughs> uh, it's got a good solid copper color, uh, which you notice. Oh, the, uh, the mash bill, for those of you that are interested in those sort of things, 70% corn, 16% red winter wheat, 
and then 14% barley. So it's not really, uh, really different from the traditional Maker's Mark uh, mash. It's just, you know, aged uh, differently. And on the nose, it, it smells strong. You, you get the alcoholy smell, like, ooh, this is, this is high proof. This is overproof. And you also get some woody smells. And then you get a little bit of a fruit, almost like an orange peel type. But when you drink it, it's a lot smoother than you would expect, not just from the labeling, not just from the packaging, but also from the smell. Like, you smell it, and you're like, ooh, this is, this is going to be a punch in the gut. And then you drink it, and it really isn't at first. Hmm. <laughs> Um, you still get some fruit. You get a lot of wood. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like a cherry wood. It's very strong. And then it sort of willows out and goes away, and it gets bitter. And then later on, like three, four, five seconds after you've complete, you know, you swoosh it around your mouth a little bit, you sip it, you swallow it, you enjoy it. Three, four, five seconds later, you get a little bit of a burn almost in, like, your stomach. And it's like, ooh, there it is. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it, it, this is like the epitome of just a good old-fashioned sipping whiskey. You know, you have a pipe, you have a cigar, maybe have a big, dusty, leathery tome and sit in your study. Um, you know, I'm drinking it out of a brandy sifter right now for no other reason than I could just hold it in my hand and swoosh it around in the glass just because it feels appropriate. Um, it's about 45 bucks here in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's only for a fifth. Uh, I've read you can get it in 325 milliliters. They didn't have any. They only had two fifths. They didn't have anything else. And uh, so I said the hell with it and pulled the trigger. And I don't regret it at all. It definitely sounds like a Mark whiskey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the wife the wife just looks at the bottle and goes, make sure you put that where Romulus can't get it. That'll kill him. It's <laughs> <laughs> her only instructions. Just keep it out of, keep out of reach of cats. Yeah. Do not feed liquor to cats. Or at the very least, not cask drink stuff anyway. Seriously. All right, what are you doing for tools of the trade? Well, I was thinking a lot about different flavor combinations, and I found myself going back to my cookbooks. Um, As I was getting my office ready, uh, and I was finally finding a place for some books that haven't had a home for a while... Uh, you know, I, I was pulling out my cookbooks and putting them all together, putting them into my office, and I was leafing through some of my uh, baked goods books. Um, and, you know, I, I've i got weird stuff at this point, inherited stuff from, from grandparents or older family members. I've got, like, New Age TikTok cookbooks. I've got, you know, the Bob's Burgers Burger book. Um, and I got, a, you know, some stuff from the Great British Bake Off, and I was kind of looking through for, like, flavor combinations. And I was like, I wonder if anyone has ever published, like, a, a baking chart that does, like, pairings of different flavors together. And come to find out, uh, there's this website called the Baker's Almanac, and they have published what they call the Fruit Flavor Pairing Chart. And I wanted to cover this because it is super, super detailed. Uh, it's basically a matrix of... They, they, you take a fruit, and they're all in alphabetical order, and then they, they go through... There are five other columns. Uh, and they pair insert fruit here with other fruits, herbs and spices, 
nuts, spirits, and then miscellaneous. And it is like the perfect table. Like I'm literally going to like print this out and just tape it to the inside of my cabinets. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that they paired spirits and I was thinking a lot about it and they're like, well, there's a lot of baked goods, especially British baked goods that use, um, some sort of liquor in the makeup. And I was like, well, damn, I might as well just tape this above my bar if I'm, you know, going to print this off because it's super well organized. So I figured I'd share some different combinations, and I'm just going to run through a couple of these, uh, but I definitely recommend it's the, the bakersalmanac.com, uh, and it's their fl- fruit flavor pairing chart. And anything you can apply to baking, you might as well try to apply it to your cocktails. So uh, apple, very first fruit, and there's a ton of fruit that they pair it with. I'm going to skip that part. But herbs and spices, we know some of the favorites, especially here in New England. Cinnamon, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, apple pie spices, uh, but also things like thyme and rosemary and cardamom. Uh, And then when it comes to spirits, uh, some of these are really obvious. Brandy, Armanac, Calvados, Cognac. Okay, I mean, some of those are actually made from apples. Uh, But also things like Cointreau, uh, Bourbon, Kirsch. So if you're going to make uh, a cocktail with apple, you want to make a nice whiskey cocktail, you could do some apple, you could do some bourbon, maybe do like a light ginger syrup um, and finish it off with a little bit of vanilla and you can make a really interesting old-fashioned. You know, jumping down a ways, uh, they list out, there's a, ton of different kinds of melons melons pair really well with basil cumin ginger mint uh and they pair well with champagne so you can make like a really nice interesting maybe you do like a melon puree uh with champagne throw in some basil and maybe a little bit of honey and you have a really interesting alternative to the mimosa Uh, interestingly enough, kiwi does not pair with any herbs, but it pairs well with rum and banana. So next time you're trying to make a tiki cocktail, throw some kiwi in there, see what you get. Uh, and, and it just, it goes on and on and on, Mark. Uh, I figured I'd call it one of our favorite, uh, one of our favorites, pineapple. Uh, pineapple pairs well with cilantro, which I found interesting, Probably yeah, won't try how much that did one. That piss you off. <laughs> yeah, um, but saffron, star anise, um, brandy, Grand Marnier, Kirsch, orange liqueur, rum, sweet wine. Uh, you could probably do uh, some really interesting uh, brandy cocktails. Uh, maybe throw some pineapple with some cloves or some basil. Uh, finish it off with a little maple syrup. You could have like a really nice brandy cocktail. So uh, I think that I'm going to be religiously using this chart in the future. Uh, I mean, it goes like rhubarb is in here. I can't imagine wanting to put rhubarb into uh, a cocktail, but they list. I mean, you could do port with rhubarb. I don't even know what I'd do with that, but that's interesting. I mean. I could see that. I could see brandy and rhubarb, like a nice cherry brandy. I don't know how enthusiastic I would be about it, but I could kind of see where they're going with it. Yeah. I 
I think this is a really great chart, and I would encourage anybody out there who is looking to be more creative with their cocktail game, uh, start thinking outside the box. Uh, go to different flavor combinations outside of cocktails. Go to baking. Go to... Uh, th- there's a lot of really interesting cocktails out there that are um, Mexican-inspired, uh, and they use, like, uh, Aztec chocolate bitters that are really... That there's some really crazy good cocktails out there. So, you know, this is kind of my plea to, like, think outside the bun. Uh, g- go out there and try try out some of these flavor combinations and uh, let us know what, what you try and what you think and, and what you come up with. I appreciate the late 90s Taco Bell reference. <laughs> What do you got for whiskey news this week, buddy? I I'm seeing what your what this title is, and I'm very excited. So, uh, you know, when we prep for this show, I just go out and look at a bunch of different websites and you know news wires and things, just trying to find anything vaguely whiskey related. And usually, it's just the majority of the the bits and pieces you get are just the local TV affiliates, um, you know talking about a, a small distillery in Skunkwick Falls, Idaho, that is making their first whiskey or something. And nothing really interesting for, you know, big podcasts such as ourselves. This past week, though, everybody, you know, we're trendsetters once again on the Wit & Whiskey. Uh, we had talked, I think it was a few episodes ago now, certainly a few weeks ago, about Tamworth Distilling and their crab whiskey. Oh, man. Well... It took a few weeks for the world to catch on, but that's now what 90% of the news articles that you found were. And in just scrolling through all these going, oh, man, we already did this. I found that someone, uh, a Miss Melissa T. Miller from thenerdist.com, took mm-hmm. a new take on uh, Tamworth. Because honestly, I think... Most of these places, ourselves included a few weeks ago when we were talking about the crab whiskey, they're burying the lead with what these nutcases up by you are doing. So are you ready for uh, Ms. Miller's headline here? I, yes, I can't wait. Now, this is an exact quote. This is actually her headline. And it's a little clickbaity, but we'll get into why. But just, just take a minute, prepare yourself. Here we go. It turns out that beaver, beaver anal glands... Make whiskeys taste like raspberries. Oh, yeah. I do know the, about this, actually. This is beaver beaver anal glands are used as flavorings for things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I had actually known about that earlier myself. It's basically how, for folks that don't know, that is actually how you get uh, vanilla extract, artificial vanilla extract. So if you go to the store and you buy like that, you know, black liquid that's like vanilla, you know, extract that you use for baking and X, Y, and Z. It's, that's basically what it is. And it's actually uh, castorium, C-A-S-T-O-R-E-U-M. And that's the scientific name of what the oil is um, that comes from these beaver anal glands. Mm -hmm. And so, according to Tamworth, it exudes a leathery, DJ's favorite taste, a leathery but raspberry-like taste that we use to fortify our whiskey flavors. Now, Tamworth is sure to point out that no beavers come to harm in the making of this whiskey. The distiller, <laughs> the distillery gets provided 
with the castorium sacks, which would otherwise be discarded. Who these people are that have all of these anal glands and why they're going to throw them away, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but someone down the line is selling beaver anal glands. So which whiskey did they use this in? They use this in, oh God, it's French. Eau de Musque, E-A-U-D-E-M-U-S-C, which is an 88-proof castorum-flavored whiskey. And the label on the bottle has a beaver um, with his back turned towards you, so his posterior is uh, well-represented on the label. And uh, basically, they... Uh, you know, they're advertising it as another trapper whiskey. You know, you have the crab trapper, now you have the the beaver trapper. And so it's fortified with leather and raspberries, and it's the base of their, um, you know, the normal whiskey that they make in-house. So the next time you go down, DJ, you got to pick up a bottle. If you don't, you know, either that or the crab, one or the other, but the, there's going to be a run on the crab whiskey now with all the news. So you got to pick up the beaver ass whiskey. Buddy, with as much as we have heard about Tamworth Distilling, and as local as it is, I feel like we need to make... I feel like I can't go here until you can come up north and we can go together. Yeah, we're going to have to figure this out. Maybe we can get, like, press passes or something. We'll have to to work on that. Um, They're also uh, supposedly doing a durian-flavored brandy, which I don't know exactly what durian is. Oh, my God, no. Um, is that good, bad, or indifferent? Um, did you ever play Super Mario Sunshine? I did, yes. Do you remember those spiky fruits you could kick around like soccer balls? Yes. Those are durians, but they smell horrendous when you open them. Well, uh, apparently you can get brandy that tastes and or smells like that. So, uh, New Hampshire is wild, folks. <laughs> Y'all, we... We get really bored in the winter, and then we think up crazy shit. I really want to try Crab Trapper and Eau de Musk now. Yeah, Eau de Musk, that, that article, by the way, is only two weeks old. That is from the last week of June. So this is a relatively newish thing that is going on. So there's your whiskey news for today. And damn, if you're anywhere in the New England area, I mean, you could go, you know, as long as you stay away from Boston itself, you can go pretty much anywhere in New England within four hours. So if you're anywhere near there, go down and, and check it out and pick up a bottle. Yeah, Tamworth is only about an hour and 15 minutes from me. Yeah, so there you have it. And DJ lives in the middle of nowhere in a fortified bunker. So. <laughs> I mean, I live in New Hampshire suburbia. I mean, is that what you call it when you have, like, three gophers that live in your lawn? I only have one. I had a skunk the other night, and it just sat. I pulled into my driveway, and it just sat in front of the car, and I was like, can can I get out now? (laughs) That's pretty good. All right, so we're doing exhibitions in whiskey. (laughs) Finally, the main event. (laughs) Now for the exhibition about our exhibitions. Yes, yo, dog. We heard you like the exhibitions. And I don't know how we're going to top beaver ass whiskey, but we're going <laughs> to damn sure try. <laughs> I don't think I want to top that whiskey. Yeah, that is that is the ultimate. You have a dinner party and you give everyone a shot and you don't tell them what it is. <laughs> that is a dinner party where I invite you and a bunch of unknowing people and then watch you try not to laugh. 
Oh, I would play it up. I'd be like, oh, my God, this is the finest I've ever had. It's, uh... <laughs> and then you just tell one person on the way out. And then just watch as they run for your bathroom. Mm-hmm. So oh. how are we doing this? I don't know. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> blown away by... I mean, we got fucking rhubarb-infused cocktails. We got death fruit brandy and maybe you could put the rhubarb with the death fruit brandy that could be interesting maybe um, i don't know uh you want to start you want me to start how do you want to do this you have less maybe you should go first yeah i can start um so we we thought we'd kind of take one of our uh respective specialties uh each and then kind of talk through what an exhibition looks like uh so i took martial arts tournaments uh, because they are not like what you would think of if you grew up in the 90s watching uh, The Karate Kid. So um, martial arts tournaments are really interesting. Uh, unless you are into MMA, uh, which is its own thing that I am not qualified to talk to, Um Generally, martial arts tournaments are going to be similar styles competing with each other. Uh, you're not... The, 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 the competitions that get really big and they have multiple styles, um, they're, they're specifically made for that. So if you've got capoeira fighting Aikido, that, that is an exhibition that is uh, at kind of a national level. Um and it's a lot of smaller tournaments that are probably like funneling up into it. Um, it it's not as well organized or regulated as, you know, football or, or I mean, hell spelling bees. Uh, hey, they're a big deal now. Yeah. Um, so when you go to a tournament, let's assume that we're talking about a more local kind of tournament. Uh, I had talked about back in our karate and whiskey or martial arts and whiskey episode about how there's a lot of different styles of martial arts, but they can all kind of classify into four different, um, you know, major pillars, right? Striking, kicking, grappling, and felling. So uh, more often than not, uh, styles that are comparable to each other or who do similar things uh, will end up in similar tournaments. So uh, capoeira is usually not going to get matched up with karate. Um, there's always exceptions, of course, uh, but generally you've got your striking and kicking arts that tend to all do tournaments together. Uh, things like, you know, wushu, kempo, karate, taekwondo, arts like that. Uh, then jujitsu is kind of its own thing. It is what karate was in the 90s here in the U.S., uh, and it's a lot of grappling. There's a ton of grappling arts, but jujitsu is big enough at this point that it generally has its own tournaments. Uh, and then, you know, the, you'll have the big ones, like judo tournaments or things like that. Um, there there's a lot of different parts to a tournament and you can compete in a lot of different things. So when it comes to a tournament, whenever what everybody thinks of is sparring, 
Uh, so I'm just going to skip that and save it for closer to the end. Um, but within the tournament, there's also forms, uh, weapon work. Um, sometimes there's a demo competition. Uh, I, I've seen it once or twice. You don't see it very often. Um, and it's it, generally those, the, the three big categories are forms, weapons, and sparring. Uh, so the, the really interesting part, Mark, um, is that you don't have to have any sort of authority in the style that you're judging in order to judge it at a tournament, which is really interesting. So if I go to a tournament and I sign on as a judge... Uh, and Taekwondo is represented there. I've never practiced Taekwondo. I can still technically judge Taekwondo, which is really yeah, interesting. See, that That is interesting, and we'll, we'll get to that when we talk about uh, car shows and concourse. It, it's uh, sort of a similar thing there, too. Yeah, and, and once you've... I've been doing martial arts for like 26 years at this point, and once you've been doing it long enough, you can look at somebody doing a form and you can see where they're messing up. You can see where they put a lot of spirit in and overcame some difficulties. Um, it, it, it's really interesting, unless you're judging at the black belt level. Um, you know, m- most, most, honestly, it's super easy to judge kids. Uh, I was doing, I think I was like, maybe a month into Kempo, the first time we did practice um, practice forms for points. And I was able to sit there without actually having seen any of these forms and pick out things that they could have improved on, pick out like flow problems or power problems, speed problems. And I, when I teach... Uh, when I teach people how to judge tournaments, which I do pretty regularly in, in the dojo I teach at, uh, I, I make them practice judging a form that they've never really seen before. Because you, you, you pick out different things um, that people who are really familiar with the form might not. Uh, and it's very much a seeing, seeing, not being able to see the forest for the trees, right? You're... If you know that form, you know how you would do it, you know how you've been taught it, you're going to correct the problems. If you've never seen that form before, before you can you can you can critique the style of the form. you can critique their their artistry of the form. you can you can you can judge their spirit. Um, and that's that's the kind of things that that you look for in tournaments. Uh, so forms are generally, uh, if you, there's usually some sort of etiquette with, with forms. You have to bow to your judges. Uh, you have to make sure you, uh, you key at regular points in the form. You have to have power and speed and precision. Um, and there's like four P's and an S. It's power, precision, um... S is spirit. I often forget what they all are. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> I can't think of the other pieces off the top of my head. I'm a glass of whiskey in. Uh, I but, don't have a cricket button on this thing yet. But yeah. I'll work on that for next week. Uh, but generally, you're you're judging on uh, how well do they do they do their form, and and honestly, you don't really have to worry about it. Usually, they've got judges to cover the, all of the styles represented. So there's usually three to five judges. They try to keep it an odd number uh, to make sure that there's a, a tiebreaker if need be. Um, and you're looking to like if if they fall down and get injured that is sometimes a disqualification uh if they sometimes in a in a tournament setting there'll be an an area for them to do their form in and if you go outside the area you lose points um so forms are are interesting they're judged they're judged at belt level they're not judged uh, by age, generally. Sometimes there'll be kid divisions and adult divisions that have an age cutoff. Um, but generally, you're you're going to be judged, if you're a white belt, you're being judged with white belts. Uh, or sometimes there'll be a range, like, you know, um, white belts and blue belts together or, or whatnot. Uh, because belt ranks are so different per style, sometimes they'll do years in rank. Uh, so like you've been practicing for zero to one year, you know, one to two, depending on the tournament. Uh, weapons are generally judged the same way, um, but it's it, weapons are really interesting. So uh, the tournaments that I have been to, there hasn't been a lot of blade work. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of sword work. And that's largely because I spent a lot of time in karate where there really isn't a lot of sword work at all. Uh, and then I joined Kempo, and there's some sword work, uh, but generally uh, you'll find that people are, are doing a lot more of what you would consider classic uh, martial arts weapons than Chaku, Staves, uh, Sai, Tunfa. And then, you know, you'll, you'll see the one kid who's got a katana, the, you know, the two kids who've got straight swords. Um, again, weapons, still not sparring. Uh, I can't stress enough how, how rare it is to see any sort of weapon fighting. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen weapon fighting at a tournament, and the only time I can really think of it is, like, fencing, probably, and that's its own... That's its own thing. It's a European discipline. Um, so weapons are judged much like forms are. Uh, there's some additional rules with weapons. So if you lose control of the weapon, you're disqualified. If you drop the weapon, you're disqualified. If you throw the weapon, you're disqualified. Um, that Unless it's specifically a weapon that is meant to be thrown, something like a rope dart or a chain whip, um, but I, honestly, you don't see a lot of those in tournaments these days. Uh, and generally, it's it's your mastery over the weapon, your control of the weapon, um, and with both forms and weapon work, you can you can see when somebody's sloppy or hasn't practiced. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've watched tournaments. I, I've never formally judged one. I've been a corner judge here and there. Um, but how many times uh, people screw up and then they make a big deal out of it and lose themselves even more points. 
Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, if if you're if you're good at martial arts and you make a mistake, if you can keep it going and not just completely tell the whole world with with your face and your 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 body language that you've screwed up, uh, sometimes the judges won't know. If you can just roll into the next part of the form and recover nicely, it's kind of like figure skating in a in a certain way. Uh, you know, if figure skaters get into their head after they've they've fallen, uh, you'll often see them make more and more mistakes, or they'll look visibly frustrated, and that will lose them points. It's the same thing here. Um, so there is a certain amount of having a poker face that goes a long way. Um, and then we get into sparring. Uh, and sparring is really interesting because there's a ton of etiquette and a ton of judging. Um, so generally in the local tournaments I've gone to and, and local tournaments are like drive an hour to this decently small town and the tournament is held in some high school gym on a Saturday. Um, generally, I am going to local tournaments that are stand-up arts. Striking, kicking, karate, kempo, taekwondo, that kind of stuff. So there isn't a lot of wrestling and grappling. Uh, Sometimes there's takedowns, um, but takedowns are often discouraged, especially in lower belt ranks, because of a lack of control. And uh, so black belts and... Uh, lower ranks are judged completely differently. And this is where I like to bring up uh, one of my favorite martial arts acronyms, RHIP. Rank has its privileges. Um, My father-in-law used to always say that about being the fire chief. Yeah. Rank has its privileges. Uh, When you are a black belt, you can be a corner judge. You can just show up and volunteer. It's not a big deal. Uh, corner judges are exactly what they sound like. A sparring ring has four corners. You generally have four corner judges. Uh, and the corner judges are there to help the main judge of the match make determinations on a, on a call. So sparring is really fast. When you're doing a form, generally it's slow enough that the three people who are sitting at the table can judge it pretty well. Sometimes forums have corner judges to kind of see when you turn and if there's any issues, but oftentimes forums will just have table judges. Sparring matches have corner judges because the action is very fast and you need to be able to see it from all angles. It's the same reason why we record things in sporting events, right? So that they can be replayed and reanalyzed, except we're talking some local high school gym there's no way that we have uh, sophisticated enough equipment to be able to go back and, and, and review a judgment call. So uh, corner judges are there, and when a judge calls for a stop, you know, it's usually a, a, you know, a hop or something like that, really nice and loud, the participants go back to their, their respective sides, and then the judge will call judge's call, and there's a bunch of hand signals. So uh, a usually the hand signal is uh, 
one hand going towards the left is the the is point for the left opponent. Hand going to the right is a point for the right opponent. Pretty easy stuff. Um, there's a lot of other ones. If you cross your hands in front of your face, it means you didn't see uh, the point that was called. If you cross your hands lower below your belt, it means no contest or no point. Uh, if you bump your fists in front of you, it means a clash. Uh, clash is when both opponents have gotten a point at the same time, so you can't make a judgment call on who should who the point should go to. Uh, there's also a you can you can point to which side and touch your face, and that usually means contact. Uh, too many contact votes, and it's like a penalty. Um, it's like getting a strike in baseball. Too many strikes, you're disqualified, and the, your opponent wins. Uh, and contact contact rules are interesting. Most striking and kicking arts that are, that are standing sparring arts, uh, it, we all hear nothing below the belt, but it's actually uh, the only targets are below the neck and above the belt. So if you're punching somebody in the face... Uh, it's it's contact and you you get a penalty. It's frowned upon generally. It is another example of where rank has privileges. Um, black belts will sometimes be allowed to go for the face. A lot of times in tournaments, uh, you'll you'll be able to show a strike to the head without hitting it. And if your control is good and it looks like you would have hit, a point can be called in your favor. It's a bit of a sticky wicket though because if you do make contact it's pretty pretty quickly uh, a contact call so uh, don't do it unless you're really good and you know that that tournament allows it I'm trying to think I think that's all of the the hand signals um, if an injury happens in sparring the the opposing person, uh, needs to kneel and turn away while the injury is dealt with. If if the sparring match can continue, it'll continue. Otherwise, the judges will make a call. Um, sparring etiquette. There's a lot of sparring sparring etiquette. It's martial arts. Everything is it has pomp and circumstance. Uh, you make sure you bow to all your judges. You bow to your opponent. You touch gloves. Uh, most sparring events require. Um, I think it's like mid-tier safety gear. You don't need chest protectors most of the time, uh, but you, much like formal tournaments require foam-dipped gear, which is a whole thing. I hate it, but it's it's a standard. Uh, it's it's a safety standard. Um, you generally need foot coverings, head covering. You need gloves. You need a mouthpiece. Um, uh, people with male biology need to be wearing a jockstrap and a cup. Uh, some tournaments will require shin guards. Um, that's most of the safety gear. I do know people who go to sparring with chest gear uh, and chest protectors. You don't generally have to. Uh, and you know what? You bow to everybody. You touch gloves. You wait for for the match to begin. You fight, and then. Uh, Anytime you hear any of the judges call stop, call hop, call whatever, they'll tell you what they're going to say. Um, it's back to the corners in, in a like ready position. Uh, and then you don't fucking argue with the judges. You don't, you don't argue with the call. 
Um, don't yell at the Empire and don't argue with your judges. Amen. Yeah. Uh, there's usually fees uh, when you go to a tournament. Uh, fees are usually there to pay the main judges for their time um, and, and, you know, pay, pay for any trophies or ribbons or anything like that. It's usually nominal. It's like 20 or 40 bucks for a local tournament. Uh, I've seen more expensive ones that are larger, but that, that's basically what you're doing. Again, sparring belt divisions. Um, a lot of people who come to watch the tournaments, uh, you know, if you're not there for a family member, you're there to watch the black belts. Uh, and black belts tend to get away with a lot. Uh, black belts can get away with more contact. They can get away with going harder. Um I'll be honest, I don't do sparring in tournaments at all. I've done forums once or twice. I've done decently well. Um, sparring's not really my my steez. I enjoy teaching sparring more than I do actually doing it at this point. Um, and I've done some weapon work in, in, uh, in tournaments. The weapon stuff is actually what I really appreciate doing in tournaments because it's it's highly technical and um, easy to screw up, but if you do it well, it looks re really good. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I mean, I I do always enjoy like sometimes late at night on ESPN two or whatever they'll have some form demonstrations and things, and it's like that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I. I feel like when I was younger and full of piss and vinegar, the sparring was really cool and I did it a few times and it, it hurt. So I didn't really do it as much after that. But, um, the older I get, the more I appreciate like a well, a well done form or a well done weapon demonstration. Hmm. But yeah, martial arts tournaments, they're, they're really interesting. I I've, Scratch the surface here. The, the bigger the tournament is, or depending on the style, jiu-jitsu tournaments are very different. There's different kinds of rolling competitions. and um, When you grapple, the tap rule comes into play uh, when you're not grappling. I mean, if it's just pun punching for points, um, it's generally the fastest one to the point uh, gets the point. So... You're not. You, there's no need to tap out when you know you, you just got punched. Um, but if you are looking at grappling, wrestling, uh, muay thai, or, or any uh, jujitsu, any of the the MMA MMA type styles, uh, when it gets to that grappling point, the tap rule is really important. If somebody taps, you let them go. You get out of there. You don't keep going. Um, that's pretty standard stuff. Uh, but the the tap rule doesn't come into play when you're working at it with a standing art. Now, about how long is one of these tournaments? Like, you, you drive your hour, your ninety minutes, whatever. You go to the high school gym. About how long are you going to be there? Uh, anywhere between four and six hours. Um, you know, just to get through all the different belt ranks. It it really depends on how big the space is, how many judges they have. Uh, and what the event is, uh, you know, if you've got a plethora of corner judges and people who can jump in and jump between matches, you can be running sparring matches pretty, pretty consistently. I've also been to tournaments where they didn't have the staff and they're running one match at a time and that shit takes forever. That's going to be a long day. Yeah. Well, 
I learned a lot. Yeah, martial arts tournaments are interesting, but it's not it's not my my scene most of the time. But they are fun to go to and support my students. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good. Now, like, okay, that brings up another interesting point. You know, you 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 train, you have students, you teach. You know, let's say hypothetically, on some strange earth in the multiverse, I'm one of your students. God forbid. Fair. Um, I'm going to you know tournament X, and you come out to support me. Is it like boxing? Like, can you be like a corner man? Can you coach, or is that frowned upon? Um, you know, it's not like boxing. Be in that like boxers tend to have staff with them in their corner. You know, people, you know, they might have somebody who's dealing with the water bottles, somebody who's coaching them, somebody who's, uh, you know, helping them uh, with gear. Uh, In a martial arts tournament, you're mostly responsible for yourself. If your teacher is there, they can help warm you up. Um, Generally, at a tournament, uh, you know, you'll get there half hour, 20 minutes early. And, uh, you know, if your sensei's gone with you or a black belt's gone with you, you'll, they'll warm everybody up together and, uh, you know, take any final questions or whatnot. And then while you're waiting for your match, you know, you might watch the matches with your sensei and he might point things out uh, that you can look out for. But it's not, like, once you're in the match, you're, you're in the ring yourself and that's it. So it's not like the karate kid. You're not yelling at him to sweep the leg. No, no. Uh, <laughs> if people are yelling from the crowd at a standard martial arts tournament, uh, they are shitty parents. And it's a good way to get booted, I imagine. Yeah, no. I, I have seen judges boot relatives for being shitty. It's the same. It, the, the problem is that martial arts tournaments are generally not a spectator event. The people who are there are there for for one of the people competing. So, um, you know, I I'm sure there's probably martial arts tournaments that are more nationally recognized. But I mean, you know, the the, the Hampton one that I've gone to, or or the one down in Haverhill, they're not. I mean, they're small. You're not you're not advertising that in the local paper. don't think I have any more questions. What you got? I can just imagine one guy just heckling everybody and then getting his ass kicked at the end of the tournament by like 12 guys. So true. Uh, no, mine is uh, mine is also not a spectator sport. Um, I decided to do uh, car shows, car demonstrations, concourse, um, you know, however you want to call it. And, uh, you know, just to give little background, you know, much like DJ has participated in tournaments, you know, a little bit of sparring, some weapons, some form, gone with a bunch of his students. I was big into this for a long time before I started racing. Just recently got back into it a little bit. Um, You know, I have 30-some awards from different shows, which is not all that impressive. You go to enough shows with a decent car, you will start winning trophies. Uh, but, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, the old man and I took Cosworth to a national show. We took second place, and it got me thinking as we sat there for three days. Uh, you know, basically, how do these things work, and uh, what are some tips if you want to get into it? So we're going to be talking about shows. Basically, 
if you get into the car hobby, there's two types of things in the scene. There's shows and there's cruises. And ironically enough, 99% of the time, a cruise or a cruise night does not involve actually cruising anywhere. Hmm. Basically, what a cruise night is, it's just you meet at a business that allows you to, you park for a few hours, you talk, there's no admission fee, there's no trophies, there's no awards, there's no judges, there's no nothing. And uh, they're boring as shit. (laughs) And the reason they're boring as shit is you see the same 10, 20, however many cars every week. (laughs) There is uh, a pizza place literally three doors down from the studio where I'm at right now. Every Wednesday night. They had one just before we started recording. Uh, Tonight, every Wednesday night, they have one. I can name you without fail, the first 10 or 12 cars that will be there every week. And it's supposed to start at 6 o'clock. They'll be there by 3.34. And I probably would get 7 or 8 out of the first 10 right, even where they're going to park. And these are, like, the same cars from the same people? or Yes, the exact same people, the exact same cars. And there's primarily two reasons for this. And this is going to sound mean, and it kind of is, but it is what it is. Number one, they're cheap. They don't want to pay to go to a show. Uh, cruises are free. You don't have to spend any money. I mean, this one's at a pizza place. You're encouraged to go in and support the business. They don't. Uh, they just want to go and sit around and, you know, say, look at what I have. And the other reason, oftentimes, but not 100%, the cheap part is 100%, but uh, not always 100%, but most of the time, their vehicles aren't that nice. They've gone to a few shows. They've been rejected by the judges. They have a chip on their shoulder. There's a conspiracy, X, Y, Z. So we're not going to talk about cruise nights. We're going to talk about formal shows where you have to go, you have to pay a fee, you have to sign up for a class, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where we'll start with classes. Uh, Usually there's a few different ways that they do it. Oftentimes you'll see listings for quote-unquote stock classes, meaning the car has to be stock. It pretty much has to be in assembly line condition. You know, this is the way the car rolled out of the factory in whatever year it was built. These classes can either be time period based, they could be model based, they could be make based. It really depends on how big the show is, how many cars they're expecting. So you might often see, you know, 1960 to 1969 stock, Hmm. 1970 to 1979 stock. Or you might see um, Chrysler Corporation products, stock, Chevrolets, stock. Some of the bigger models will have their own classes, Corvettes, because Corvette guys whine. We'll talk about that later. Um, You'll see, uh, you know, Mustangs usually have their own classes because there's a lot of them, and there's going to be a lot of them that come to the show. Now, even though it has to be mostly assembly line condition, a lot of places do allow you the quote-unquote three mods rule. This used to be written down, although it's pretty much just an unwritten rule anymore that everybody knows, and basically that means you're allowed up to three modifications as long as they're not major. And the biggest ones you'd see would be uh, if you change the wheels, you know, put a set of uh, mags on a car or, you know, aftermarket wheels or something. Even though there's four wheels, that's one modification. Uh, Oftentimes you'll see people put aftermarket gauges in cars, older cars, especially temperature gauges. 
uh, volt gauges because, you know, you want to know how hot the car is running. You want to know where your battery's at, et cetera. So they make these little three-gauge clusters that are less than 100 bucks at any auto parts store. It takes one hour to put in. A lot of people run them. Uh, you know, you're not really – you might lose a point or two, but you're still stock. You have a gauge cluster in the car, you're still stock. Things like that, you're allowed up to three. Now, like, you can't change the engine. <laughs> you can't show up with a Mustang with, like, a small-block Chevy in it. No. Well, that's one mod. No, get out. You know, you can't, like, cut the roof off if it's not a convertible, stuff like that. So major changes, major customizations, they're flat-out forbidden. There used to be a rule for years and years, and I never understood it then, and thankfully, it's pretty dead now, but every now and then you'll see a car with it. For a long time, there was a rule you had to have a fire extinguisher. (laughs) I never understood this. And I never got an actual explanation, you know, even when I was in the show, even when I was judging the shows, I never got an explanation as to why, what, like, what was the point? What was the reasoning behind this? But for a while, you'd actually, you know, if you went to like an AutoZone or a Pet Boys or something, they were selling these small fire extinguishers in all different colors and in chrome and et cetera that you could actually mount in the center hump of your car behind the shifter. And that was just for shows. I mean, they were so small, they wouldn't put out any fire. I mean, they were functional. You could use them, but they wouldn't do anything. Uh, Mm. And oftentimes you'd see at shows, somebody would park and they would just bring like a kitchen fire extinguisher or a business fire extinguisher and they would just pull it out of their trunk and set it next to the car. (laughs) Just be like, here, I have one. Shut up. But thankfully, that seems to have gone away. What What was the reason behind it? Never, never was told. Don't know. Nobody around. Well, this you gotta have one. Why? You gotta have one. I don't know. That's Somebody's car caught on fire once, probably seventy years ago, and fucked everybody over. Uh, the counter to the stock classes, of course, are the modified classes. This pretty much anything goes. You know, wild engines, superchargers, nitrous. Oh, oh so modern. This is where you see. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you know, you'll see. Uh, you see your low riders, you see cars with hydraulics, things like that. Uh, these are often time period based, you know, 1970, 1979, modified, etc. Uh, or they could be type based. They might say modified trucks. They might say modified muscle cars. They might say modified imports, etc. Uh, then the third type you have is a lot of times they'll throw in specialty classes. Big one you'll see a lot is for a survivor, for an unrestored car. Like, uh, you know, if I take the Cosworth to a show and they have one of these because Cosworth's never been restored, uh, you enter that. And uh, basically it puts you on a more even playing field. You know, you might be, you might have uh, a Mustang versus a Corvette versus a, you know, Packard, but they're all unrestored. They haven't had the money put in. They haven't put the time put in. These are the way they were literally since the time they were built, so they're all judged together. Uh, <laughs> rat rods are a, a newish thing that have emerged in the last 15, 20 years. It's something I don't get. Um, basically, they will tell you that the idea behind a rat rod is you want to build a car for as cheap as possible with parts you have laying around the house. And that's how hot rodding started. I mean, you go post-World War II, that was the hot rodding thing. The rat rod guy is kind of taken in a different direction in that it's supposed to look as ugly or as ratty as possible. 
So a lot of rust, although they don't call it rust anymore. They call it patina. Um, Bullshit. Yeah, I know. Uh, keg, beer, empty beer kegs being used as gas cans, gas tanks is a big one. Um, any type of weird-ass household item you could graft as a shift knob, stuff like that. And you can't really judge them against anything but themselves. So you'll often have them put in another class. Uh, I used to get mad when I have the roadster and I'd go to a show and somebody's like, oh, you brought the rat rod. I'm like, fuck you. No, this is nice. (laughs) Just look at you. Uh, custom vans. It, it's not as big as it was in the seventies, but you know, the big vans with the water beds in the back and the stereos and everything. Sometimes you'll still see classes for them. And uh, especially in the paintwork, there's a lot of work that goes into those. Uh, you mentioned it modern. This is a big bone of contention in car shows right now. Uh, I went to one two Sundays ago, me and my buddy, there was a big cigar bar had a car show we took the Cosworth up and people were bitching because there was a ton of just newer cars 2000s and up Mustangs Challengers Corvettes and I see both sides of the coin yes literally anybody can just go to a dealership plop down money buy a car take it to a car show and you know again I'm going to pick on vet guys because they're the worst speaking from judging experience they're the worst they usually come dressed head to toe in gear, hats, polos, shorts, shoes, anything branded they can get. And they'll sit there and they'll tell you all about how, oh, this is the fastest thing here, and this is this, and this is a $100,000 car. And they're all just entry-level bone stock 350 automatic Corvettes that a 70-year-old thinks is fast, and they're like one of the slowest cars there. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of people that get mad. Oh, you just bought a car and parked it in there, and you're trying to get a trophy. Yeah. But on the same time... With certain things, and this is where the slippery slope goes, certain things should be allowed. This show we went to on Sunday, the guy came in a little bit later in a Ferrari, a pretty much brand new Ferrari. And it had a crowd around it because it's pretty much the only time kids are going to see something like that. Oh, yeah. Like, if they don't go out, nobody's going to see them. And if you're going to get new people into the hobby, you got to have the stuff that you can get on the street. I mean, 90% of the people aren't going to go out and, you know, buy a 70 Roadrunner. They're just not out there. Yeah. So I'm of two minds of that. But if they're in their own class, hey, knock themselves out. I don't really care. And then oftentimes on top of everything, you'll see, you know, a top 10 or a top 25 or a top 50. Some shows are actually going to this uh, permanently. When I ran our show here at the, the studio, for years and years, because we were getting so many cars. We were pushing 200 cars out on the lawn. We were doing top 35, and then we had a couple specialty awards. And that way, basically, everybody's pretty much on an equal playing field, and you just get judged, and, hey, we're giving this many trophies out. And, you know, if you get a best of show, obviously, that's a little bit higher. But otherwise, you're just, you're one of the top 20 cars here. You're one of the top 35 cars here. You're one of the top 50 cars here. And you're seeing a, a lot of people are going to that. Um, then on the very, very tippy top, you have a uh, concourse or you have standards of excellence. And this is the best of the best, the biggest of the baddest. This is where you see, you know, the out in Monterey or, you know, Misslewood just had one this past week. Cars that are literally seven and eight figures are showing up and being judged. Damn. Uh, they're usually a hundred point scale, prolonged judging, hours of judging. A panel of judges will pour over a car. And I knew a buddy, he had a car for years, 
And, you know, it was 100-point scale, and he would go to these big concourse events. And he came back once, and he had a 97.5 out of 100. And this car was perfect. I mean, if, so finally I said to him one day, I said, look, I'm not busting your balls, but what did they take off for? He said, oh, come here, I'll show you. And so he pops the hood, and the first thing he pointed out was, you know, behind the motor, you have the distributor that goes in, and there's always that little tiny clamp that holds the distributor to the motor. And it's one bolt, usually, that holds that clamp in. He said, yeah, that bolt and that clamp is wrong. I don't have the right year. They made a special bolt for that year. I don't have it. That was a point. That was one whole point. (laughs) So, yeah, that's... That's nuts. We don't usually do a lot. And usually it's a panel of judges, and they have a background in X. So if you bring a Porsche to a concourse, they've got a couple guys that are, like, either worked for Porsche or are Porsche experts. You know, Ferraris, et cetera. Uh, Monterey just had a bunch of guys. They flew in from Italy for Alfa Romero. They were looking at Alfa Romeros. So it's the best of the best. Now, judging. Uh, Like I said, I did some judging for a while, so I can, you know, talk a little bit about what we used to do. Most judge shows, uh, you'll have three to five judges. You've got to have an odd number in case there's a tie. And usually one person is involved with the show or the organization. You know, if, like if it's for a charity, they'll usually have one person sort of involved with the charity just to kind of make them feel good, really, to humor them. But the vast majority of the judges, like if it's a five-member judge, five-panel judge, uh, you'll, four of them will have a background in cars or motorsports or something. And it's the same thing like the karate tournaments. You know, for the longest time, I was an expert on Mopars. I was an expert on Chrysler products. You could judge anything. Now, usually somebody might say, hey, there's, you know, a really nice Roadrunner. There's a really nice GTX or something. You should go look at that. You know about more about these than we do. But you might get stuck looking at Fords. Like the show we went to where we took second place, we got a judge's ballot. It was for Cadillacs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a whole hell of a lot about Cadillacs. I mean, I went and looked. I knew it looked nice, but I, it's not really my expertise. I can tell you, like, if something's majorly wrong, I can point it out, but I'm not a big caddy guy. Uh, sometimes you'll have a celebrity judge, and usually that's just for a special award. Like, the city of Wilkes-Barre by us, they have a, a city car show once a month. The mayor gives out a trophy. And it's just whatever car that month the mayor likes. Here you go. <laughs> that's uh, nice. Yeah, you know, it's the old man won it one year. He was all happy. Um, the uh, I judged a show for a few years at a church, and they used to let the priest pick out a car. Whatever one you like, Father, knock yourself out. We got a trophy for you. You know, and it's just, it lets them feel involved, and it brings a tie into the organization. Much like DJ was saying with karate tournaments, the judges are volunteer. Mm-hmm. Oh. And at the end of the day, now I don't know what you win at a karate tournament, but if you win a car show, you win a trophy or a plaque. You literally win a twenty to thirty dollar piece of plastic that will collect dust. Mm-hmm. I have an entire shelf in my garage covered in these things, covered in dust. You could go out and buy one. <laughs> like it's, you could literally they'll make you one. They won't even ask questions. Yeah, I won whatever show. Just knock yourself out. People get so angry. You swear you ran over and spit in their baby's face sometimes. And you're not even being mean. You're just, just, they didn't win. I've had people come up to me at Cosby. I've had people call me. Just bitter. Send me letters. I had an old guy write me a letter once. It's like, what what the hell? (laughs) 
Likewise, if you are a judge, you cannot win. You, you cannot even be judged. You can bring a car. All the shows I used to judge, I'd bring a car, but I never entered it because I was judging. This, you would think, goes without saying, and 90% of the time it does, but uh, I was involved judging a show for a while, and the woman who was running the show uh, said, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't judge my car. And she had a very nice Model A, Ford Model A, that would have won probably in any other show, but this was hers. And she, we said, well, no, you're judging. And everybody basically told her the same thing. She freaked out and made a big scene and basically had to be asked to leave her own show. And uh, basically they don't have that show anymore because that whole group imploded because one of the judge, one of the, you know, people running the show, judging the show, wanted to win, didn't. So yeah, don't be an idiot. Um, one of the things that's becoming popular uh, on a larger scale lately is participant judging. Basically, if you enter a car in the show, you get a ballot. And generally, participant judging is just, hey, any car here, you get to vote on, you get to judge, knock yourself out. Usually, you have to list a couple, like five or ten or whatever. And it boils down to a popularity contest. You know, it's like running for class president. Um, a lot of times this will be done for the bigger shows if you're doing top 50, if you're doing a top 100. The shows I ran, I never did participant judging, but, eh, you know, it doesn't matter. P- people do it, and it makes it easier. You don't have to find judges, and likewise, the judges aren't going to get accosted after the show. <laughs> uh, some shows get around this, and this is what I used to do. They just have a People's Choice Award. So, okay, you might have however many trophies, one of them the people get to vote on. And again, if you do it right, let's say, you know, DJ gets his VW bus, he brings it to my show, the people vote for DJ. Even if you were going to win another trophy, you can't win twice. Like, okay, you won people's choice, we'll move down to one of our alternates. Because, I mean, come on, you you don't want some guy taking five fucking trophies. (laughs) And participant judging people's choice, that could be a fun way to get kids involved. You'll often see, like, Summit uh, Racing is a big proponent of this have a kid's award and they give out stickers, you know, I'm a judge and you give it to the kids and they get to run around, they vote for their own, uh, their favorite car. That That's a good way to do it. That's a good way to, to keep the hobby alive. So quickly, before we wrap up, just some tips. If you're going to enter a show, number one, clean your car. I mean, this sounds like, duh, this sounds like, you know, obvious. You'd be amazed how many people don't, don't do it. And I'm not talking about like, you know, fine detail. It's spend hours. I've done that too. And if you want to knock yourself out, just clean it, like wipe the bugs off of it if you drove it in, you know, get the mud off the mud flaps, stupid stuff like that. Mm. Um, bring some cleaning stuff for touch-ups because you're going to hit a puddle on the way. You might get a bug on the windshield. You might, a million different things. Like The show I drove to on Sunday, we were on the highway the whole way, bird shit on the car. Of course. Oh, no. You know, you got to have a rag, got to have this, just little touch-up stuff. If you have any paperwork, any documentation, any literature, you know, if it's an older car, if you have the window sticker, even if it's a reproduction, if it's the one for the car, bring all that. Judges look for that shit. They love that shit. They want history. Um, The opposite end of the spectrum, don't be the one loser at a show that brings all the trophies you win. No one cares. (laughs) Just literally no one cares. I've gone to shows with people that are national award winners that literally have the cars. You know, I was talking to a guy a couple weeks ago. He has a a Corvair Stinger. They 
made less than 2,000 of them. Cars won everywhere it went. He doesn't have a single trophy he brings with him. He doesn't need to. If the car is that nice, you don't need to. And likewise, if I'm debating between two cars, let's say two cars are equal and on points, and you have all your trophies and somebody else doesn't, well, let that guy win for once. Yeah. That's actually going to hurt you rather than help you. But people still do it. You got to have your hood open. You got to have your trunk open. You got to have your windows down. Um, Not just so people can see the interior, judges can see the interior, but the biggest way that shows are promoted is people go to other shows and hand out flyers. And if you don't have your windows down, you can't get any flyers. So, you know, don't be that asshole that has their windows up. Convertible tops can go either way. I've heard the argument that they should be up so that you don't see the, you know, rips and tears and anything. The shows I used to run, I never made that a rule. I don't really care because my argument is if it's an older convertible, you're only bringing it out when you can have the top down anyway. Mm-hmm. So that never really bothered me. If you want to have it up, have it up. If you want to have it down, have it down. I don't really care. Bring a chair, bring a cooler. It's a long fucking day. Um, when we used to do our show here at the studio, we advertised it as nine to three. Uh, cars started rolling in usually about seven o'clock. Damn. And it would go till about three thirty-four. It's just it's a long fucking day. If you buy the car when the judges come, answer their question, answer the judges' questions. And you know, they're just gonna ask you ba- real basic shit. And they're not gonna go super advanced, they're not gonna this, that. Just answer the questions honestly. Point out your car's strong points and conversely point out the bad points. Show you don't have anything to hide. I mean, when I take the Cosworth out, I'll show you the the side, the passenger side quarter panel where the guy, previous owner backed into a pole. I'll show you where the Bondo is. Yeah, here, look. He fucked it all up. You know, be the guy that doesn't care. Be the guy that's just like, yeah, the car is what it is. Here it is. Mm. Um, there's something to be said for that. And especially if you're going to a charity one, check out the 50-50. Check out the basket raffles. There's usually a lot of good shit, and it'll kill time because, I mean, obviously you want to walk around. You want to look at everybody else's car. You want to get some pictures. But there's still a lot of downtime when you're just going to be sitting by your car. So, Anything to go and kill time is nice. So definitely do that. But, I mean, overall, it's just, it's a fun way to kill a Sunday. I wouldn't be like some of these guys that go week after week. I mean, I don't know how it is in New Hampshire, but around here, pretty much from the last week of April till almost Halloween, either on a Saturday or a Sunday, you can go to a show every week if you want to. And just, no. (laughs) But, you know, once a month, a couple times a year, it's a good way to kill a day. I feel like Laconia is the big car placer up up here. I mean, they do a crazy bike week. They've got, I think Laconia has, is that Loudon? I don't know. We, yes. We, yeah. So that we've got a lot of car things around. I mean, just, just in the very small town that I live in, we've got two drag strips and the Lee Speedway. So there's a lot of car stuff around here. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a good entry level, especially if you're looking to get into the hobby, if you want to buy something, whether you want to buy something old or new, go to some shows, go to some cruises, and just look and see what you like. And be like, oh, I'd like to get one of those. I'd like to, you know, don't be the guy that goes to, like, the big national show and, you know, stumbles across a Superbird, you know, oh, yeah, they're $400,000 a piece, have fun. Um, but, you know, for 90% of the people, it's a good way to get in the door, and you might get lucky because a lot of times they're, 
any decent show, you're going to have four or five different cars that have for sale signs in them because guys like me are always trying to flip shit. <laughs> um, but just to get in and see what you like, see what you might be interested in owning, it's a great way to start. That's fantastic. That's it. That's all I got. How did you... So do you and your dad usually both bring cars or do you bring one each? Do you just bring one when you go? It depends. The one we went to two Sundays ago, we brought both cars and it was a big event because that dart, his dart doesn't go anywhere. (laughs) Um, But we convoyed up. That's the nice thing about being in a car club. um, Aside from the fact that you got a bunch of guys that just like to bust each other's balls and drink all the time is a lot of times if you're in a car club, if you get a couple guys together, you'll meet somewhere and you'll just go in as a convoy and take your own little cruise. And that's kind of fun. Nice. Um, but sometimes we take two, sometimes we go in one, we've gone to shows before and just walked around. We don't do that as often, but we've done that before. And the nice thing about that is if you don't have a car, you can leave whenever the hell you want. You don't have to wait for it to end. Uh, cause some of them are fucking long. Uh, but you know, it, it depends on what the mood is. It depends on how far it is. His car really isn't set up for the highway so much. Uh, so if it's, you know, more side roads, back roads, uh, we might take two, but it, it's really six of one, half a dozen of the other. There's no real rhyme or reason. That's fair. Do, do you and your dad ever like bust each other's chops for beating one or the other in the, uh, in the competition? Yeah. <sighs> I mean, we do, but not not to the extent you would think. I mean, we've both won so much we don't really care. <laughs> and it, it's I don't I don't want to sound like arrogant or flippant, but it's like, you know, if it's between us and somebody else, let somebody else win. You know, it's just like we don't we don't go for for that anymore. Like the show we went to two weeks ago uh, was in a little town about 20 minutes away, but it's on the other side of a mountain. And so we went specifically because we knew we would see shit we never saw before. And we did. So that was kind of fun. Um, There was actually years and years and years ago, when I was still in high school, there was a Neil Diamond impersonator, of all things, (laughs) who made a nice racket DJing and running car shows in the area. And he would have one a week at a pizza place. He'd have one a week at a Chili's, like just all these little chain restaurants in the area basically hired this guy out. And so he was doing like three, four shows a week. And he had this thing like, basically you had to win a a small award. And then at the end of the summer, all the winners got put together. I don't even remember the convoluted bullshit he came up with, but basically if you wanted any one of his shows, you were in this grand poobah pool at the end. And I had my charger at the time, and my old man had his GTO, and we both won. And so the big show in September or whatever, he was hyping this up over the PA, like these two are gonna da ba ba ba, their father and son, and and who's going home? And we're all like, dude, we don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) You know, we share the same garage, trophies going in the same place. What the fuck? You probably work in the same damn car at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you know, and like we drive all our own shit. Like I'll take his car half the time. He'll take my car half the fucking time. Like we don't, you know, we don't care. But, but yeah, if we're out together, it'd be like, Oh, it's more so if one of us goes out to a show and the other one's thinking about it and doesn't No, oh, you should have been there. I won. If you were there, you would have won. Uh, you know, it's more like that. <laughs> I love that. Well, I think that wraps our topic up this week, everybody. 
so thank you for listening, of course. Thank you uh, for subscribing and uh, give us that review. If you think about it on iTunes, that helps us get up there. Save us on Spotify. Uh, we are online at thewittenwhiskeycast.com. Uh, you can reach us at thewittenwhiskeycast at gmail.com. Uh, we're, we're just everywhere. Uh, we release um, nice and early Friday mornings. Uh, so yeah, keep, keep your ear to the, to the, your favorite podcatcher. And, uh, what are we doing next week, buddy? Well, what says you, because you just had not terribly long ago, your baby moon. Yes. And, uh, my trip to Carlisle to the big national show I was talking about, that was my vacation. So we both had our own little mini vacations. Why don't we do vacations in whiskey? I think that'd be fantastic. There you go. That's probably the easiest we've ever picked a topic. Uh, I know usually it's Hemin and Han, and I gotta, you know, cut out f- five minutes of you going. Oh, I don't know about this. No, I I planned ahead this week. <laughs> I'm so proud. I love that I get I get tripped up by the intro and you get tripped up by the outro. Yeah, well, you know, it's just I don't want it to end. I gotta I gotta drag. You know, you gotta stretch. <laughs> Well, of course, we want to thank our uh, silent third partner here, Nuno Henry Silva, for intro and outro music. Thank you so much. We'll uh, send you to his SoundCloud. Check out his books on Amazon. I, I hear there might be rumors of a third one at some point. Hang uh, on. I have a button for Nuno to show him how much I love him. Mwah. Big old kiss for Nuno. <laughs> uh, until next time, everybody. Cheers. Salud. Salud.